Have you ever seen a photograph of yourself that you weren't really aware of it being taken and it just captured you really well and you thought, yeah, that, there is a photograph of me that I like. Normally I don't like photographs of me, but occasionally there's one that some of the photographers caught me off guard and you think, I think, yes, that's, that's good, I like that. Or maybe you've had that experience or maybe you've seen a portrait of someone and they're not sitting all formally for the portrait. They're sitting casually and the, the, the artist has captured them sort of unawares. And you see something about their, their character. You see something, uh, there's a sparkle in their eye perhaps. You see the, the lines around their eyes. You, you see there just something slightly different about them that you wouldn't see in a, in a formal picture that's been taken. Well, that's kind of like what we've got in Genesis uh, 18. Earlier, God has appeared very formally to Abraham to make promises and to solemn binding promises. But, but here we see God up close and we see four different things about him that are really important to see because they give us a glimpse of what God is like. It's like one of those candid portraits or candid uh, photographs of someone that, that catches them uh, unawares, as it were, and you see something of who they really are. And there's four things that I want us to see in this, as we see, because it would be easy for us to have a, a wrong idea of God, to have an idea of God that is either limited by our circumstances or that is limited by how we have been taught about him and maybe he seems far and distant or maybe he seems to us that he's always standing there with a big stick ready to, 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 to batter us. But let's look at how we see him in this chapter. It seems just a bit of a, a strange chapter. You know, why is it there? It doesn't seem overly significant. God has already made promises to Abraham that, he'll, that Abraham and Sarah will have a son. But why? Why is this here? Well, the Holy Spirit has, has inspired Moses to record this incident because it's like one of those photographs. It allows us to see something of God's character in a different way. Four things. First of all, we see the God who draws near. The God who draws near. It's uh, the middle of the day. It's siesta time. It's roasting hot. Abraham is an old man. And as he sits in the cool shade of his tent entrance, he becomes aware of someone standing nearby. You know how that is. You're, 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 you're sitting there with your eyes closed and yet suddenly you're, you're aware. They haven't made any noise, but there's someone there. And, uh, well, so it is here. In fact, it's not one person. It's three people are standing there. Um, standing near, like this was apparently the sort of the oriental equivalent of knocking. You know, there was no hard door to knock on the, the tent, so you, you stood and you waited to be noticed. And so uh, these people are standing waiting for an invitation to be extended, and Abram sees them. And he, he's a good host, and he jumps to his feet, and he runs over, and he bows low, and he says, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass by. Let a little water be brought to wash. And let me get you... Now, 
this version translates it's something to eat. Literally, it's, let me get you a, a piece of bread. Uh, it sounds like the bare minimum. But it, it's more like when you go to your granny's and she says, I've made you a cup of tea. And you, you come in and the table is festooned with buns and sandwiches and cakes as far as the eye can see. Abram's piece of bread uh, is uh, it's made out of 22 litres of flour. That's a lot of bread. Think naan bread. Think flatbreads. Um, a whole calf. Tender, succulent steak. Washed down with the richest, creamiest milk. That's what he brings. It's, it's a banquet. And now, perhaps, we have a question. Is this simply good hospitality? Or does Abraham recognize that this is God standing in front of him? Does he know from the start? Or is it a gradual realization? Commentators disagree. Um, some point out that the word Lord that's used here simply can mean sir. Others say that the particular form of the Hebrew word is only used to address God. Uh, some uh, say, well, the Lord's already appeared to Abraham. Surely he should know what he looks like, and so Abraham should recognize him. Well, which is it? We're not particularly told, and I think that misses the point slightly. Because in asking that sort of question, we're asking, or we're looking at Abraham and wondering how does he feel? And the question, the passage isn't there to teach us about Abraham. This part of the Bible is here, as virtually every part of the Bible, is to help us to see God. So the question is not how did Abraham feel when these visitors turned up, um, or did Abraham know it was God? What do we see of God here? And what we see is a God who delights to draw near. A God who delights to come close to his people. He's not a distant God, but one who's prepared to come close. And sometimes we see in the Bible that he does it spectacularly at Mount Sinai in uh, flames and fire and dark cloud and thunder and lightning. Sometimes it's like he did in Genesis chapter 17 where there's this smoking, flaming object that appears and passes between the parts of the animals, the, the, uh, the, the severed carcasses. It's, it's spectacular. But sometimes it's in the midst of the very ordinary. Like here in this chapter. And he eats a meal with Abraham. I think this is the only time in the Old Testament when God is depicted as eating. At other times, people eat in his presence, but here he's eating in front of Abraham. And here we see eating, well, it's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of closeness. And we don't see it happening again until we find God again come in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. And as we see him as described as one who eats and drinks with sinners. Here's God sitting and eating with people, underlining that he's come to be close, to be their friend. And then in the New Testament, then we read on and we find that it's at a meal. That he takes the bread and he takes the wine 
and he commands his followers to eat and to drink. Say, keep doing this until I come back for you. Because he wants them to remember what he's done and that he's a God who is close to his people. He's a God who delights to spend time with his people. He's not cold and stark and distant. And this is... This is what what we see in Genesis 18. In in one glimpse in the Old Testament that's repeated frequently in the New Testament is what God is like. He doesn't always appear with a fanfare and with displays of the spectacular. It's amidst the ordinariness of life that God often draws close. The ordinariness of a sermon. Perhaps God is speaking to you this morning and you sense him drawing close. Perhaps it's in the ordinariness of a conversation with a friend and they point you to God's word or they point you to a promise or they say something to you that that you, you sense God's closeness. Or maybe it's in a quiet moment of prayer. Or maybe it's in a noisy moment of prayer where the kids are doing all sorts And you've snatched a moment to pray and you you sense amidst the busyness God's closeness. Or maybe it's at work. Or maybe it's looking at the scenery. Maybe it's a verse comes to mind. Maybe it's you're doing something and something inexplicable happens and, and everything works out and things fall into place. And think, wow, only God could have done that. And you're aware in that moment that God has drawn near amidst the ordinariness. Or maybe it's just a sense of his truth or care or his, the fact that this is all real and it's brought home to you in a fresh way. And God has drawn close. And it may not be every day, but you still have a God who delights to come close to his people. Do you need to be reminded of that this morning? And sometimes he does it whenever we've put ourselves out and we've made time to, 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 to speak with someone or we've made time to invite someone for a meal or we've made time to, to just take time with someone who, who needs our our attention in that moment and we find ourselves as we speak to them of who God is or what God has done or they speak to us of some experience or some uh, verse of scripture or they share with us something of what God has done in their lives, we find God coming close to us as we've put ourselves out. We find like Abram and Sarah did that God has come close. So here's a God who comes close to his people. Secondly, a God who reassures. A God who reassures. Why, why, why is this here? Why did God do this? The way the whole story is set up is that this is portrayed as the main purpose of his visit. In the next part of the chapter that we'll look at, God willing, next week, he tells Abraham that is going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's portrayed almost as an afterthought, that telling of Abraham. This is the main purpose of his being here. And this visit 
has as its main aim something wonderfully tender. Remember, God had told Abraham in the previous chapter, which seems to have been fairly recently, that Sarah would have a son in a year's time. It would seem that Sarah is having trouble believing this. Imagine, imagine Abraham coming uh, to, to Sarah after the events of chapter 17 and telling Sarah how Ishmael wasn't the promised child, this, this son that he had had with the maidservant Hagar, and telling that God had promised that Sarah would have a son in a year's time. Telling of the marvelous appearance of God and the promises that he made. And she would look at him and go, you and your dreams. Look at us, she might say. I'm 89 and you're 99. Those days are gone, dearie. Long gone, pet. It's been 24 years since the promise was made. And all I hear is promises, promises. There's going to be a promised son, a promised child, a promised baby. Yes, yes, yes. And nothing happens. How is it that God always appears to you? How come I never hear the promise? Was it like that? Maybe I'm doing her a disservice. Maybe she didn't think all that, but certainly it seems as if she really was struggling to believe. And what I love is that God the Son, because that's who, that's, that's the member of the Trinity, that's the, the person of the Trinity that, that appears in human form in the Old Testament and then comes in, in the flesh in the New Testament, God the Son. As he, he takes, as it were, a trial run of being in human form just to help this dear, doubting believer. The whole incident seems designed to reassure her, to first of all, to bring her doubts to the surface, and then to apply the healing ointment of God's promise to her doubts, so that she gets to hear it from the lips of God himself. God knows Sarah's struggle, just as he knows your struggle and mine. And he comes close to reassure. And he takes the time to do it. He doesn't just launch in with a rebuke and say, look here, lady, I made a promise. In fact, several times in a row I've made a promise. And maybe Abraham didn't explain to you, but I walked through between the carcasses to signify that I would rather be torn apart than break my promise. Did you not get that? He doesn't say that. No, he comes to talk to Sarah. And that's what verse 9, where is your wife Sarah? One writer says that's an invitation for her to listen. And verse 10, uh, the first part of it, uh, sorry, the second part of it, now Sarah was listening, could also be translated, and Sarah was listening. It's not that she was eavesdropping. She's been invited to listen. Well, why does he not summon her to come out and stand before him? Sarah, come here and stand in front of him. Well, you imagine how that would have worked out. Now, Sarah, you're going to have a son. Oh, yes, yes, indeed, sir, indeed, sir. Idiot. <laughs> you know, we put on a, a mask, wouldn't we, in front of God if we were standing there? Oh, yes, 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 indeed, indeed, that's right. What does he know? So she's standing behind him and listening as she's been invited to do. And he makes this promise that she will have a son in a year's time. 
We'll come back to our reaction in a moment. But look at the lengths that God has gone to reassure Sarah that he has a promise for her. He says in her hearing to Abraham, Sarah, your wife will have a son. There's not going to be any mistaking who will have the child. And it's not going to be any other Sarah. It's not going to be anybody else. It's this Sarah, his wife. I think it's lovely. Does this not show us an aspect of the character of our God? He knows that we are fragile. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we struggle to believe. And he goes the extra mile to reassure us. God the Son takes on human form to come on this day, to come and to sit down and to let a meal be prepared so that he can make this promise. He doesn't just boom with a big voice from heaven. Say, Sarah, listen to me. He comes up close and tenderly and, and speaks to her. Do you need reassured or even reminded that God cares enough for you? Do you need reminded that God cares enough to reassure you of his promises? You know, we struggle to believe at times. There's a man in Mark chapter 9 who comes to Jesus and says, If you're willing, you could heal my son. And Jesus says, If? If? All things are possible to him who believes. The man says, Oh, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And we can come to Jesus and say that. I'm struggling. And he'll come and he'll reassure us. Because he's that sort of God who cares. Thirdly, he's the God who does the impossible. Here's the reassuring that he does here. This chapter has two great verses to set our hearts at rest when doubt comes. One is here and one uh, is in next week's passage. Let's enjoy both of them and bookmark them in our minds. Sarah laughs, and the narrator reminds us that in some senses it's entirely reasonable, because Abraham, verse 11, and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And then he tells us what Sarah was thinking. I sometimes wonder, how does the writer of the Bible know what people are thinking in a passage like this? It could be that God revealed it directly to Moses. This is what Sarah was thinking. But perhaps it was because Sarah told the story off in the later years. There I was. There God had appeared. He was outside our tent and I had cooked a meal for him and he promised that I would have a son. And I thought to myself, catch yourself on. That's not going to happen. Do you not know? Am I going to have this pleasure? Am I going to have this delight? And just telling it to people. And then it happened. It happened. I had a son. Seems too good to be true to her. Here faith comes up against the cold hard facts of life. I'm too old. I'm worn out. And cynicism has crept in. And weary disbelief and skepticism that comes from disappointment has been seeping into her heart. Do you know that? You know that weary disbelief and skepticism that comes from disappointment or God just doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. Think, well, we'll ratchet it back a bit. We'll not expect so much or we'll give up on God. Maybe you've been waiting 
longing for God to do something. Something in particular that He has promised to do in His Word. Or that He has held out hope of in His Word. Or something you've sought to honor God. And you're waiting for Him to honor you. And whatever it is, it just doesn't seem to be coming. And it's easy to give up and become cynical. That person is too hard, we might think. That husband, that brother, that wife, that mother, that father, they're too hard. They'll never come to Jesus. Or, my situation is too hard. My circumstances are too difficult. God can't change them. That person who's despairing might feel, I just can't do this. I can't do it. It's not possible. Life is not going to change. There is no hope. The place where I am in life is too hard. And into Sarah's creeping cynicism and hurting heart, God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Here's this God who comes close. Here's this God who reassures. And look what he says. Is anything too hard for me? It's wonderful. Well, actually, literally it is wonderful because that's what the word hard can be translated as. Here, it can be translated as, is anything too difficult? Anything too wonderful? Anything too amazing? Anything too extraordinary? Anything too marvelous? It's translated all those different ways in the Bible. Psalm 98 for wonders he has done. Same word. Zechariah 8.6. One of my favorites. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the people at that time. But will it seem marvelous to me? Declares the Lord Almighty. Maybe a big deal to you. But to me? Well, that's just every day. That's what I do. It may seem too big, too hard, too difficult. That small change, when it comes to my power, God says. It might seem a big deal to you, but will it be too much for me? Think of it. Think of it. Is anything too marvelous for the Lord? Anything too extraordinary? The question waits for the answer. No, no, of course not. Think of a loved one who shows no interest in Jesus. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We look at our discouragement. And we wonder if light will ever shine into our darkness. Say to yourself, is anything too hard for the Lord? We look at sinful patterns in our lives, sinful habits that we can't seem to break. And we want to beat them. And we say to ourselves, I'll never do it, I'll never change. God speaks to you in this moment and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? We look at coping with illness. And sickness. God says to us, if frustration and cynicism has been creeping in, is anything too hard for me? Trust me. Trust me. We look at our church, we look at our nation, and we see a turning away from Christianity and an abandoning of God's word and God's ways. We think, oh... There'll never be any change. People won't listen. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Was China too hard for the Lord? Was communist Russia too hard for the Lord? I read a, a piece this week in, in uh, an article in the Daily Telegraph about North Korea. 
just said the Christian church is also growing and deepening its roots there. Is anything too hard for our God? Not at all. Not at all. Here is reason to pray big and to trust much. Nothing is too hard for our God. That's not a blank check. But as we seek to pray according to God's will and according to God's promises, what this is saying to us is we have no reason to give up hope, no reason to despair over any circumstances that seem too hard. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And this miracle birth points us away forward in our Bibles to another miracle birth. Not an old woman having a child, but another physiological impossibility. A virgin having a child. And God the Son coming into the world again and taking human form to provide salvation for us. Because what is impossible for us is possible with God. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And this chapter is here not just to to remind us that God is a God who comes close and God can do powerful things, but actually all our hope rests entirely on God. We cannot do this ourselves. It is impossible for us to save ourselves. It was impossible for Abram and Sarah to have a son through the usual means. It was going to take a miracle from God for it to happen. And for us to have new life, it's going to take a miracle. But that's not too hard for God. Every one of you here this morning who is a Christian has experienced a miracle. It takes the same miracle for anyone to come to Christ. Just because I grew up with Christian parents and who took me to church every week and told me the Bible, I needed a miracle for me to come to put my trust in Jesus. I needed that new birth that's being spoken of here and pointed forward to here in my life. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, that's what you need. And God says, that's not too hard for me. Fourthly, and finally, just as we finish, another aspect of God's character that we see here. The God who shows grace. The God who shows grace. Scripture never buries the flaws of God's people. It doesn't whitewash them. It doesn't gloss over our sin. And here we see Sarah, you know, she panics. She's thought, oh, God will not know. And she's a, a, a snigger to herself at the tent door whenever God promises that she'll have a child. And God says, why did you laugh? She panics. I didn't laugh. And then comes phrase that seems ominous. Yes, you did laugh. We know that God hates lies. How much more he, must he hate them in his own people who should know better? And how much worse are they when they are in response to a beautiful promise? I wonder, do we ever do that? Do we hear God's word? Do we read a passage that has spoken hope into our circumstances and we say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay for other people, but not for me. It's as if Sarah's saying, God, that might be possible for others, 
but you, you, know, you can't even change my circumstances. And that's a wicked thing. That's a wicked thing for Sarah to do. Almighty God is speaking and she is listening to her doubts instead of listening to God. She knows better than Almighty God. If you find yourself doing that, repent. Repent and listen to what God is saying. It was wicked. But what is utterly glorious is God's reaction, or rather the lack of it. He hates lies. What would you have done? I might have been inclined to retract the promise. Well, okay, if that's the way you want it, that's the way it'll be. I, I made you a wonderful promise, but you have rejected it on your own head, be it. Oh, no. Oh, no. He simply and lovingly highlights her sin so that she can repent of it. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That's grace. That's grace. And in a year's time, thereabouts, Sarah's going to be sitting there with a baby boy bouncing on her knee. And, you know, God says, I want you to call him laughter. Because both you and your husband laugh when I said you'd have a son. But I keep my promise. And where judgment should have come, where a great rebuke should have come, grace came. That's the God that we see here in Scripture. The God who shows grace to those who deserve punishment. How often have you or I flung God's kindness in His face and yet He's been patient. He's been patient. He's the God who shows grace. I wonder, do you need reminded of that this morning? Maybe you're one of God's people this morning and you need reminded that this is what your God is like. He draws close. He's a God who reassures. He's a God who does the impossible. And He's a God, despite our feelings, keeps showing grace to us and keeps holding out His promises to us. Or maybe you haven't yet come to Jesus uh, this morning, but here's a God that you can approach, a God who holds out mercy and grace, a God who offers to do the impossible and who gives a fresh start to those who come to Him. It might seem a huge thing, but will it seem huge to Him? No. Well within His power, His ability, his love, and his compassion. Let's stand, uh, if we're able, as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for this intimate little snapshot of your character, where we see that you are a God who is not far off and distant, but a God who is close to each of us. Even this morning, you're close, you're here. Thank you too that you're a God who reassures us when we have got doubts. Lord, I pray that any with doubts this morning, with struggles, with unbelief about certain aspects of their walk with you, that you would draw close and you would reassure. Father, for those this morning who are struggling in difficult circumstances. Let them hear 
your promise of help in time of need and let them hear you say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Father, we thank you that you're a God who shows grace for we foul up continually and we fling your kindness back in your face many times and yet you're a God who shows grace to us and who offers forgiveness and who holds out help continually to your people. We thank you for God the Son coming into the world to do the impossible, to bring new life to us who were dead in our trespasses and sins. We thank you that he came and that he went to the cross and that he died so that we could have new life. We thank you that he is close to his people and that he is coming back for his people and one day we shall sit as Abraham did and we will eat with God. Father, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.